This morning we're beginning a, a new study in the book of 1 Thessalonians. And uh, if you've been a part of this church for some time, then you know that uh, it's our custom to always be in the Word of God. Uh, the Bible is the foundation of everything that we do. Sometimes we uh, are in short series, like the one that we just finished in the book of Jonah. Sometimes they're topical series, and then many times we'll take more time to actually go through a book of Scripture. And so we're beginning this study today in the book of 1 Thessalonians. Now, if you're interested in more detailed background to this book study, uh, we put uh, some uh, background material out on the table in the narthex for you this morning. They're right by that survey which I talked about earlier. You can just step out and pick that up if you're really into doing Bible study and you want to look at more of the background of this book, uh, you'll find it out there. Uh, This is a a fascinating book of Scripture, one of the earliest written in the New Testament. And Paul is writing to a group of new believers uh, here in this book of Scripture, a church that he founded and the stories told in Acts chapter 17. If you want to turn back to Acts and look at uh, the story of how Paul founded uh, this book of Scripture. But these believers that he's writing to were experiencing adversity. Have you ever had any adversity in your life? They were encountering some unexpected turbulence. They were going through some trials Uh, And we're going to talk about that as we work our way through this book. What do you do when you encounter adversity? Well, I ran across an interesting story just this week. You're going to be in disbelief when you listen to this, but it's a true story. It actually took place on March 28, 1947 at 6.55 a.m., There was a gentleman by the name of William Camillo, and he drove a bus in the Bronx. That particular day, he got on his bus to drive his normal route, and then he had a thought. He said, why not go someplace else today? And so he got in the bus, and instead of driving his normal route, he drove out of town, and he ended up in New Jersey where he ate lunch, And then he drove to Washington, D.C., where he parked in front of the White House and saw a few sights. And then he took the bus to Florida. He went swimming late one night. And after three days in Hollywood, Florida, and after his nighttime swim, he was totally free, but he had no money. So what do you do when you're in Florida driving a New York City bus and you have no money? Well, he did a stupid thing. He telegrammed his boss back in New York City and asked him for $50 cash. They sent the police after him. The police found him along with a mechanic, only they didn't know how to drive the bus, so he, Mr. Camillo, actually drove them back to New York City. And when he got there, he found out that he had become a national hero, if you can believe that. Everybody who had always wanted to leave it all found him to be a hero, and so his company didn't prosecute him, and he forever became known as the man who had the courage to drive his bus out of town and leave it all. Now, when he was asked why he did it, this is what he said. And incidentally, 
He never left town again. For 16 years, he faithfully drove that bus route forever thereafter until he died. But this is what he said. New York traffic gets you. How many of you would agree with that? It's like driving in a squirrel cage. I just wanted to get away from everything and leave it all. Well, that's the way we feel when you encounter adversity, isn't it? And that's exactly the situation as Paul was writing to these believers in Thessalonica. They were encountering unexpected turbulence. They were going through trial and adversity, and they felt like leaving it all. So Paul sends Timothy to visit them from Corinth, and he finds out how they're doing. And you can read about the stress and the level of their affliction in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 2 and 3. He writes this book from Corinth in the spring of 50 A.D., as these believers, look at verse 6 in chapter 1, this, this passage, just a few verses after Andy read these verses for us this morning. And notice that he describes them as having received the word of God in severe suffering or immense affliction. They were going through adversity. And so Paul writes to encourage them. He writes to comfort them and to reassure them uh, in their Christian faith in the midst of this adversity that they're going through. That's the situation as he writes this letter. And my prayer for you this morning as we do this study in the weeks ahead is that you're going to receive the same kind of encouragement so that you don't get on the bus and drive it out of town. We've all been there. We've all done that. We've all felt like just leaving it when we encounter adversity that almost seems insurmountable in our lives. We don't know how we're going to get through this. We just feel like taking the bus and going to Florida. But my prayer today is that you're going to receive encouragement and comfort in your walk with the Lord Jesus Christ, regardless of what's going on in your life as we work our way through the pages of this book and look at Paul's encouragement to these early believers. Now, next week, as we get further into chapter 1, what we're going to see is that these early Christians had an incredible effect on their world in the first century A.D., the world around them. Turn back to Acts chapter 17, and I want you to look at one verse of Scripture which which describes Paul's ministry among the Thessalonican believers. And notice what the Word of God tells us here in Acts chapter 17, verse 6. The Bible says, and when they, that is the city officials and those that that were not trusting in the Lord Jesus Christ, when the unbelievers could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the Christian brothers before the city authorities shouting, these men who've turned their world upside down have come here also. Now, who are they describing there? Well, they're describing Paul and Silas and Timothy, those people that had this ministry among the Thessalonians. And what they're saying here is that they turned their world literally upside down. 
When I was a college student at Texas A&M University, one of my most memorable Bible conferences that I ever went to was in a place called Palestine, Texas. Now, I've been here in New York long enough to know that you've got a lot of Bible camps and a lot of places where you go for Bible seminars. But this one marked my life forever. And the theme of that conference was men that turn their world upside down. That's what Paul and Silas and Timothy did. They literally turned their world on its head. They turned their world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. And when we get into the pages of this book, what you're going to see is that the Thessalonians did exactly what Paul and Silas did in their community. They turned their world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. And if you take the time this week to read through verses 4 through 10, the rest of chapter 1, you're going to see that they have this incredible influence. They leave this incredible mark on the first century world that they were a part of in Macedonia. God wants to do the same thing here in First Baptist Church. The city of Thessalonica was strategically located. It was located on what we call the Ignatian Way. That was the main east-west thoroughfare in Macedonia that connected the west with the east. It'd be like I-90, which goes from Buffalo to Boston. It was strategically located. But it was also a port city, like New York City. New York City was planted where it was because it was, it was on the edge of the ocean. It was a port city. Thessalonica was a port city. And it not only connected the east with the west, but it connected the north with the south. It would be like they, it was on a juncture of I-90 and I-87, which connects Montreal with New York City. We're strategically located. First Baptist Church of Westerlo is located on, on this state route, but it, it's, it's, it's strategically located. People can come here from, from miles around. This body of believers is, is scattered throughout the hill towns. We have an opportunity to influence our area for the Lord Jesus Christ in the way that these early believers did who turned their world upside down for the Lord Jesus Christ. And I think the Lord wants to do that kind of thing in our midst. Now, in order to do that, I want you to notice three truths this morning in these first three verses of 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. If we're going to follow their model, I think it's important to understand at the very get-go, at the very beginning, three truths that were significant in these early believers' lives, and we find them in these first three verses. And the first truth that I want you to to get this morning is in verse 1. These early believers understood their position in the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, what does that mean? Let's talk about that. I want to unpack this for a minute. And I want us to dive into this verse of Scripture and talk about what Paul is telling them here in verse 1. Look at verse 1 again. 
Paul writes, Paul, Silas, and Timothy to the church of the Thessalonians in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace and peace to you. Underline that word church or circle it in your Bible. This is an interesting Greek word. The word church in the Greek language, the word ekklesia, comes from two different Greek words. The word ek, which means to out of or out from, and the word kaleo, which means to call. It literally means to be called out from something. They were called out from the world. In other words, they weren't to buy into the values and the belief system and the idols of all all the people that worshiped around them. They were to be different. They were called out from. And that word is translated synagogue or assembly in the New Testament. It means an assembly or a congregation of people that have been called out that are different, that don't blend in but stand out. And that's who we are. We've been called out from the world that we were once a part of. And that's who Paul's writing to in this verse of Scripture. In John chapter 17, verses 14 through 18, Jesus put it this way, and these verses are on the screen for you. I've given them your word, and the world has hated them. Now, who's Jesus talking about there in John 17? Well, he's talking about Christians. He's talking about people who have come to know the saving mercy and grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, a group of people who have been called out from the world that they were a part of. And he says... I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, for they are not of the world. We've been called out from among the world. Any more than I'm of the world, they are not of the world, even as I'm not of it. Sanctify them by your truth. Your word is truth, Jesus said. But then notice this interesting thought at the very end of these verses. As you sent me into the world, I have sent them into the world. You see, as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ, we've been called out of the world to be different from the people around us. But guess what? Jesus has left us in the world. We're not to be of the world. We're to be different, but we're still in the world. We're an assembly of called out ones, called to impact and influence our culture and the people around us for the Lord Jesus Christ. That's the meaning of this this word. One of the most significant events that I've been a part of since I've been here in New York was the vacation school barbecue that we had a couple of weeks ago. And I want to thank Angel and our vacation Bible school team for coming up with that idea. That was a great idea. If you were here that afternoon, that Sunday afternoon that we had our community barbecue before VBS then you got to experience what Jesus, or pardon me, what Paul is talking about here in this verse of Scripture. Because on that occasion, we had all kinds of people from our church family mixing it with people that are a part of our community. We're a group which has been called out of the world 
We're to be different, but we're still in the world, and we're called to impact our world for the Lord Jesus Christ. I think that was just a great event, a great example of what we're to be doing as a body of believers as we build bridges to our community in order to impact our community for the Lord Jesus Christ. We were being God's called out ones, salt and light, rubbing shoulders with others on that occasion. But the first key, the letter A in understanding how to impact our culture for the Lord Jesus is to understand who we are and who we belong to. Our position in the Lord Jesus Christ is called out ones. And notice this little phrase, we're called out and who do we belong to? Look at the end of verse 1. We belong to God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. We actually have our existence in God the Father and our Lord Jesus Christ. We are called out, and yet we are connected to the Lord Jesus. Could you say that with me for just a minute? Called out and connected to. That's our position. If I could summarize it, if I could make it as simple as possible, I'd summarize it with those two phrases. We're called out and we're connected to the Lord Jesus Christ as we influence and impact others for him with our lives. Let me ask you a question. Are you clear on your position in the Lord Jesus Christ this morning? What is your identity as a Christian? And I wrote a few questions here in my notes on page two if you want to follow along. And I just want to ask you, do you see yourself as a church attender here this morning? as a member of First Baptist Church of Westerlo, as a Sunday school teacher, as a vacation Bible school worker. We just talked about vacation Bible school. Do you see yourself as a church trustee? Do you see yourself as a deacon and an elder? What title do you have? How do you see yourself? What's your position? You know, all of those things are good things. But none of those things are sufficient to carry you through and to get you through when you encounter adversity in your life. That's not enough to be just a church trustee or I worked at vacation Bible school or I work in the nursery or whatever it may be. Those are all great things. But that's not enough to carry you through when affliction comes your way, when you encounter adversity. Let me illustrate in this way. How many of you remember the the movie Rudy? Any of you Notre Dame fans in here? How many of you aren't Notre Dame fans? But you still remember the, the movie Rudy. Rudy was a lineman on the Notre Dame football team. You remember that? That was his position. He happened to be on the third or fourth string. And he went through a lot of adversity. He went through a lot of difficulty. But if you remember the the end of the movie, he experiences great victory because he finally gets into a game. Let me ask you, what carried this little no-name Rudy through all of those years of, of suffering on the practice field? What enabled him to endure and stay on that football squad when he got knocked down by all of those guys that were bigger than him? Was it the fact that he he happened to be a guard on the football team? Absolutely not. You know what carried him through? 
He had a passion and a love for Notre Dame. And Era Parsegian was his coach. And so he got to be a part of something that was, that was much bigger than what he was and, and, and something he always dreamed of being a part of. What carries you through when you encounter adversity and difficulty in your life? It's not just being on a church committee or being a part of the First Baptist Church of Westerlo or serving in the, in the nursery. The thing that carries us through is that what? Our head coach is the Lord Jesus Christ. And we get to be on his team. We're called out. We're called to be a part of not the Notre Dame football team, but a band of brothers called Christians. A called out assembly. They were clear on what their position was. Now, the second thing that carried them through the adversity that they encountered, and the second key or the B that enabled them to have the impact that they had, is found in verse 2. Notice what Paul writes. We always thank God for all of you. Mentioning you in our prayers, we continually remember before our God and Father your work, your, your labor, and your endurance. But notice verse 2. Notice that Paul is talking now about his prayer for these believers And that's the second key to endurance in the Christian life. We need the prayer of other people. These believers in Thessalonica had the prayer of the Apostle Paul to encourage them and to bolster them and help them keep standing through these trials and difficulties that they were enduring. They had the prayers of Paul. They had the prayers of Silas and Timothy. If you read verses 2 and 3 carefully. And how often was Paul praying for them? Notice the words always. We always thank God for you. Notice that he says we continually remember you. They were praying for them constantly and continuously and consistently. I want to challenge you this morning to just do a little Bible study on the prayers of Paul at the beginning of his New Testament letters. And I, if, you, if you'll do that study, and if you look up the verses at the bottom of this page, you got, if you got the notes in front of you this morning, if you do that Bible study, what you're going to find out is that Paul begins his salutation or his greeting of all of these letters in the same way, with prayer. He's always praying for these believers that he ministered to. He had a heart of prayer for them. He was constantly praying for them, consistently praying for them. We need to be praying for others. We need to be praying for one another. And we need the prayers of one another. I need your prayers. One of the most encouraging things when we came to this church, and I've said it many times, was the covenant that you made to pray for me and Elizabeth and to pray for this ministry during this transitional time. Russ and I were standing out in the parking lot of um, the church on uh, Thursday night after our elder meeting. We got out of there a little later than I wanted. It was about 11 o'clock, and we're standing out there, and we're talking before you drove home. And we're talking about what God is doing here right now. And I remember telling Russ, you know what? 
if the Holy Spirit doesn't show up and if God doesn't work here, it doesn't matter how many meetings we have with our transition team. It doesn't matter how many times the music committee meets. It doesn't matter what we do here. God has to show up. We need God in his power working in the midst of our church family right now. So I'm asking you this morning, please don't stop praying. Yeah, you might have signed that covenant last September, October, whenever that was. And now it's, it's already July, the end of July. It's almost August of the next year. But don't stop praying because we need God's power. We need God working in our lives here if we're going to have the impact that we're talking about today. I want to tell you just a couple of stories on prayer that I hope will be an encouragement to you. For years in the second church that I served, I prayed with a group of other Christian workers and pastors in town and on one occasion, I got this letter from Ken Mendenhall, who was an all-American tackle for the Oklahoma Sooners back in the 1970s. He was ministering with a group called Search Ministries, which is an evangelistic ministry in the city. And he'd gotten this letter. And he asked the question, how important is prayer? And then he quotes J.O. Frazier, a missionary to China over a century ago. And this is what J.O. Frazier said. I cannot insist too strongly on my own helplessness. Among these people, apart from the grace of God, I find myself able to do little or nothing apart from God's doing before me and work, going before me and working among men. Without this, I feel like a man who has his boat grounded in shallow water. Pull or push as he, he may, he will not be able to make his boat move more than a few inches. Have you ever tried to push or pull a boat stuck in mud? You can't do it if it's stuck and embedded enough. But let the tide come in and lift his boat off the bottom, then he will be able to move it as far as he pleases quite easily and without friction. It is necessary for me to go around our people preaching and teaching and exhorting and rebuking. But the amount of progress made thereby depends almost entirely on the state of the spiritual tide in the village. Now, what determines the state of the spiritual tide? You know what determines the state of the spiritual tide in a village or a church? Prayer, prayer, prayer. I'm feeling more and more, he wrote, that is, after all, the prayers of God's people that will call down blessing upon the work, whether they are directly engaged in it or not. And then I want to take the time to share one other story with you on the importance of prayer. This is a story of a young man who got his God and Country Award in the Boy Scouts. And he said, he wrote, I grew up outside the church but when I learned about the God and Country Award in Boy Scouts, I wanted it. And that meant if going to church, then I was determined to do it, even though he'd grown up outside the church. Each week, I walked from my house to the little church building on the next block. And I walked by the Renards' home every time and later. And I worked for the Renards doing yard work. 
And then I began attending that little church. Twelve years later, after I became a Christian and a preacher, I learned that Mr. and Mrs. Reinard were in a nursing home nearby. He got his God and Country Award and went on to become a pastor. And now he goes to visit this elderly couple in a nursing home that had befriended him. And this is the story he tells. My wife and I walked into the room, and I don't remember which one of them spoke, but I'll never forget what this elderly couple said. Do you remember, they said, when you used to walk by that little church on the corner where you got your God and Country Award? We have not missed one day since praying that God would do something in your life. And then he stopped and he thought to himself, for 12 years, that elderly couple prayed for him every day, day after day for 12 years. I had no other Christian influence at that time in my life, but eventually I became a Christian and I became a pastor. I was prayed into the kingdom. There's simply no other explanation. The power and the importance of prayer. They understood their position and they were dependent on Paul's prayers. And then the third and final thought that I want to share with you this morning is that they practiced what they believed. And so the three key words in this, these first three verses are position, prayer, and practice. They understood their position, verse 1, who they were and who they belonged to. They understood the importance of prayer. They were dependent on it. And then the third thought is that they practiced what they believed. And that's the C in the ABCs of influencing or impacting our community for Christ. There's an interesting book. As we look at this last verse of Scripture, I want to share this. There's an interesting book written by David Kinnaman called Unchristian. And in this book, he cites some statistics from the Barna Research Group. George Barna went out and he did some research among people born between 1965 and the year 2002. And in his recap of what he discovered, this is what he says. Of the non-Christians surveyed that were born between 65 and 2002... 84% said they personally knew at least one committed Christian. 84%. That's more than 8 out of 10 people that were surveyed. And yet just 15% thought the lifestyles of those Christ followers, those Christians, were significantly different from the people, the rest of the people around them. In other words, they saw no difference in the life of the Christians that they knew. Paul Cedar, who was the president of the denomination that I served in for so many years, the Evangelical Free Church, made this statement on evangelism. He said, evangelism, penetrating and reaching our culture for Christ, is more who we are and where we are than what we say. Now, see if you agree with him or not. 
He may overstate the case a little bit, but he's trying to make a point. He said, it's more than just handing a person a gospel tract. He goes on to say, it's immoral to teach the skills of evangelism if the lifestyle of evangelism is not there. Now, I might disagree a little bit. It's very important that you share the gospel and the words of the gospel. But if you're not living in such a way that your life validates it, if you're not practicing what you believe, what you say makes no difference. In fact, it may have a negative impact. That's really what they're saying here. And what I want you to see here in verse 3 as we wrap this up this morning is these people not only understood who they were and who they belonged to, and they not only understood the importance of prayer, but they understood the importance of practicing what they believed. Notice how Paul describes him. This double triad, he says, we remember always your work, labor, and endurance, which is motivated by faith, love, and hope. Gene Getz, many years ago, wrote a book called The Measure of a Church, and he defined a mature church with three words. You know how to measure maturity? Faith, hope, and love. And if you look at the fourth page of these notes, we've got a boatload of Scripture there that gives you all of the passages of the New Testament that talk about faith, hope, and love. If we're growing in hope, if we're growing in faith, if we're growing in love, then we're growing to become more like Jesus. We're, we're living out our faith in an authentic way. And these believers were doing this. Now, let's talk about these phrases just very quickly. Notice, work produced by faith. What keeps you working? Well, it's not how you feel, is it? You know what? Guess what? If I, if I did what I felt like, I'd probably only show up at the church office half the time. Because there's some days I don't feel like walking over here. That's just the truth of it. I'd rather get on a city bus and drive it out of town and go to Florida than have to walk over to the church office. And let's just be honest with each other. It's the same way with you, isn't it? What keeps you showing up? What keeps you working? It's not how you feel. It's your faith. Faith. It's your trust in the Lord Jesus Christ. It's your belief in him. The word work is a word which is used throughout the New Testament to describe good works or work, just work in general. And the thing that keeps us faithful the key thing that keeps us showing up at our place of work, whether it's the church office or Helderberg Christian School or, gosh, I don't know where Russ works. Uh, he, he works all over, you know. But the thing that keeps you showing up is your faith, not your feelings. Work motivated by faith. Faith produces faithfulness, and then labor. If you have the NIV version prompted by love, this word labor here in verse 3 
uh, describes work, but it goes a step beyond that. It's a very interesting Greek word. If you got the notes, you can read about it there at the bottom of page four. It means to labor to the point of exhaustion, to toil to the place of, uh, of feeling like you're going to faint. It, it describes strain and self-sacrifice. And what motivates us to serve in that way? Well, love, our love for the brethren and our love for the Lord Jesus Christ. And, and, and this kind of love is described in 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verses 4 through 8. It's the kind of love that the Lord wants us to have for one another. I've got this fascinating story that I ran across this last week of an elderly lady who was challenged in a sermon to do something with her spiritual gift. And the one gift that she knew that she had was the gift of hospitality. And so she was scratching her head, wondering how she could use it. And then she got this idea. She lived near a college campus. And so she made some little three-by-five cards out with just the simple words, if you're homesick, come to my house at four this afternoon for tea. And she passed them out on campus. Well, the ministry started slowly. Nobody showed up. But eventually, some students started knocking on her door. And when she died... Ten years later, there were 80 university students that showed up at her funeral as honorary pallbearers because they experienced the love of the Lord Jesus Christ through this elderly lady who was willing to use her one gift that she knew of, the gift of just being hospitable and serve tea and cake and coffee to lonely university students every afternoon. Many of them came to trust the Lord Jesus Christ as I remember this story. What keeps you laboring that way? Did she feel like serving tea every afternoon? I'll bet there were a lot of days where she was tired. She was exhausted. She didn't feel like dishing out any more cake or serving up cookies or, 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 or providing tea for these students. The thing that kept her going was her faith and her love. And then this final thought here this morning at the end of verse 3, their endurance that was motivated by hope. Hope is what is the third thing that keeps us going in the Christian life. And the great thing that we're going to see as we work our way through this book of Scripture is the hope that these early Christians had. Do you know what their hope was in? Who it was in, not what, but who it was in? the Lord Jesus, and you know what they believed? They believed that he not only died and rose again from the dead, but they believed he was coming back. And if you read the book of 1 Thessalonians, you know the one theme that is repeated over and over again? It's the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we're going to be talking about this almost every week, the return of our Lord to this planet. That gives us hope. And that keeps us going. You see, we've read the end of the story, right? And we've got a hope that is is better and bigger than any Super Bowl victory, any college football national championship. And that's the hope that we have in the return of our Lord Jesus Christ. Hope as a verb is something that we do. 
But hope as a noun is something that we possess. Hope as a noun is something that we hold and it holds us. And do you know what our hope is? The hope in the return of our Lord Jesus. And that keeps us going. Let me close with this story this morning. How many of you have walked the the Brooklyn Bridge? Anybody in here? Mr. Heineman. Elizabeth Madison, you've walked the Brooklyn Bridge? You have. You did that with Randy Madison, didn't you? We were in New York City a few years ago, and we decided, you know what? We're in New York City. What do you do when you're in New York City? Well, you walk the Brooklyn Bridge. And so we walked the Brooklyn Bridge. You know the story behind the Brooklyn Bridge? 1887, there was a man by the name of David Roebling. He, got, he had a dream of building a bridge that would connect the city to Manhattan Island. Nobody thought it could be done, but he convinced his son Washington to join him. He was an engineer also in this project of building this bridge to connect Manhattan to the rest of the the city. Only tragically, early into the project, there was an accident, and David Roebling was killed, and his son Washington was injured severely to the point that he couldn't walk and he couldn't talk. Couldn't talk and couldn't walk, and everybody thought, Okay, it's over. There will be no Brooklyn Bridge. But there it is, the Brooklyn Bridge. How did they finish it? Washington couldn't talk and he couldn't walk. But he, 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 he could still think. And so he had this thought, you know what? I can tap out in Morse code on my wife's arm the instructions for the others to follow so they can finish the bridge. And so for 13 years, for 13 years, with one finger, he tapped on his wife's arm the instructions, and they finished the Brooklyn Bridge. Now, we're we're part of something much greater than building the Brooklyn Bridge. I mean, it's a pretty fancy feat. But we're, we're part of something far greater than that. We belong to the Lord Jesus Christ. And we're called to what? Impact this region and this world with his love and carry the gospel to everybody that we meet. We can have an impact We can have an influence. And if he can tap out with one finger for 13 years and finish the bridge, then we can keep on keeping on until the Lord Jesus Christ comes again. A work which is produced by faith, labor by love, and endurance, which clings to the hope that we look forward to. And what a day it's going to be when he comes back again. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, please take your word now this morning. And I pray that you'd use it in the hearts of your people. Lord, please use it in my heart. Because there are some days, Lord, where the truth is, we just feel like getting on our bus and driving it to Florida. 
We don't really want to keep on keeping on. And yet, Lord, there's some great truths in this book, in this passage this morning, to encourage us. Please give each person here the thought that they need, whatever it is today, to help them in their walk with you. This week, I pray. In Jesus' name, I ask it. Amen. Mike, would you come and just lead us now in our, our closing hymn? And let